Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, John, it's an exciting week here in Augusta, isn't it? Yeah, the Masters. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot going on. It's fun. I talk to people, and they're like, yeah, we're, we we leave. You know, we go on vacation. You want to get away from the hustle bustle? I kind of like it. I've always been here during Masters. We have never I, left Masters Week. I have, week. too. I have, too. And it just, quiets down, actually, from a business standpoint, you yeah. know. And, and, and so it's just kind of a nice time. A lot of people come in, and we yeah, like to put our have, best foot forward. And just uh, we get a couple people showing our, staying at our house. And uh, yeah, it's been fun. I heard that uh, McElroy and um, – uh, uh, Scheffler are the two favorites. So I yeah, don't know. I, mean, I could see that. Yeah, and John Rom too. You would think he'd yeah. be up there, but uh, yeah, I mean that is an easy call. But there's a lot of good golfers, and I think given the weather, it's going to give an advantage to some of the some of some probably the shorter hitters. You yeah. know that are really you know spot on. I don't know. They had the uh, LIV golfers out there, the live live yeah, tour. That's right. You know that'll be interesting. There's like to... sixteen of them that yeah. are playing. Yeah. yeah. So that adds another dimension to yeah. it. So uh, and speaking yeah. of sports, uh, South Carolina women's team they lost in the final four. They got beat that. by Iowa. Yeah, I saw that. that I was, hated that. I know. It was, it was shocking. Yeah. This one girl with Iowa just took over. Caitlin Clark, man. She is like the next Steph Curry. She was incredible. It was one of the best performances I've seen uh, on the basketball court. She just could not be stopped. She either shot the ball and made it or she had a, a spot-on pass. You're exactly she right. She was phenomenal. I, yeah, I watched the first half of the game. Then it got a little too late, so I went to bed. But I was just in the first half. Yeah. I was like, "This girl is like unstoppable." She, she does it in the second half. But I figured she'd peter out. I thought South Carolina would rise to the top and I would did beat too. them. I did too. And but, uh, the girl just anyway, kept it up, forty-one points or something. Phenomenal performance. They did lose to LSU, which is again an SEC team. But you know, that's there you go. Kind of to be expected. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a lot lots of, of fun, fun stuff going yeah. on sports. And speaking of fun, we have some. Topics that are, I don't know if they're that fun, but they're they're interesting <laughs> we think topics. They're fun. We think they're fun. They do. And um, yeah, so we're going to start off, John, talking about ESG investing. Um, I call it the good, bad, and the ugly because um, there is some good there, and there's certainly, and but then there's also some stuff that's not so good that's kind of ugly. So we're going to unpack that. We got a great article here, talks about some of the pros and cons. And just what you need to think about when you hear that term ESG and what it really means. Yeah, and then we're going to switch gears and uh, talk about a, uh, a specific topic that's out there. And I did a more of a specific um, uh, kind of a drill down on this because I, I, I've got this question a couple of times in the last uh, two or three weeks. But it also goes to show that headlines in these articles, you can't make decisions on them. I mean, that's really the questions were, should I do something different? And it's talking about the the uh, the yuan, uh, which is the Chinese currency overtaking the dollar yep. as a world's reserve. And, you know, there's starting to get some questions and some concerns out there about it. So we're going to, this is an article from um, uh, Forbes, which, you know, there's some right. sources out there that we look at that are more reputable than others, right? right. Forbes is right. up there. Uh, Morningstar yeah. is up there. Barron's, there's some really good articles that are written written and at the end of the day no one knows but we're going to dive into the the reasons why we don't believe the the one um, will overtake it and and again who knows but making those kind of making investment decisions based on these headlines right not a good thing right, not a right. good interesting topic that's been around for 10 years that question yeah. about you know the reserve currency in the u.s dollar and so it has been yes yeah so that'll be a great thing to talk about 
By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 28 years experience in financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey certified counselor. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 30 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday morning. Yeah, go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast you can catch up on. You know, recent episodes, uh, I mentioned frequently going back and listening to some of the ones during the pandemic is always interesting to me because mm-hmm. that was a, certainly a time of chaos. Um, and then uh, we also have some good tools out on the website from uh, retirement plans. We have some um, some forms for budgeting and also documenting your assets called a financial account inventory. So we have some good information on the website. Yeah, absolutely. Do check us out there. You can link to us too and send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you and we'll talk about those right here on the show. Well, John, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, so this has to do with retirement. And the average age, uh, Steve, of retirement is 64 in the U.S. And uh, okay. you know, most people we, we work with, they, they want to retire before that. Um, you know, 62 is always a goal because that's when Social Security starts. But more and more we see people wanting to retire, you know, earlier than that. I mean, you know, if they have the means right. and have saved well, we see people now retiring in, in as early as the mid-50s, um, and that's difficult to do. That's not easy, but if you follow some of these principles, you know, from a, you know, when you first start, like saving and, and um, you know, trying to pay off debt and so forth, you can do that and accomplish it. But 64 um, is a good age. You still have, um, you know, a, 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 most people have a long window for health, right? Right. So yeah. We you, don't, you only got one year to qualify for Medicare. That's right. That's right. So that's a good timing for that piece of it. But, um, you know, with a little bit of planning, you can, you can get before 64. And I think most people, the trade-off at that point is, you know, work another one or two years um, or retire, they would rather retire. Absolutely. Yeah, and it helps if you have a pension. You know, a yeah. lot of people around this area work out Savannah River site and they get they can qualify for a full pension. It's fifty eight. That makes a huge difference. Um and you know, the medical part is another big sure. part of it. So a lot to plan for there, but yeah, it is it is certainly doable. You can retire a lot earlier than that if you plan well. So great fact of the week. That leads us up here to our first topic, and that is ESG investing. The good, bad, and the ugly. Um, yeah, John, this is based on an article out of Harvard Business Review um, back about a year ago. Um, and But, John, you know, ESG investing has gotten a lot of attention lately, um, particularly with this recent bill that, was, that went through Congress um, that was vetoed by the president, um, which continues to allow pension and fund, uh, public fund managers to consider ESG scores when making fund selections. Um, as such, though, ESG has become, you know, quite this political football lately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we usually try not to step into kind of these political topics like this, but um, this one really is beyond political, though. This obviously affects your investments. Regardless of how you feel, though, about the social scores to select investments, it has some real practical implications, you know, which need to be considered for your investments. Um, but first, I mean, let's step back and let's just say, I mean, we certainly want corporate America to act responsibly, um, protect the environment, you know, help society in their efforts to conduct business. I think everybody can agree on that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and nothing is more egregious than a company or individuals that are exploiting, you know, the environment or society in order to make a profit. Um, Of course, you know, the question is, how do you encourage or nudge companies to do that? And should your investment selection 
in the open market be part of that process? Yeah, so let's first define what's meant by ESG. And this is a hot acronym that's been flying around now for a couple of years in the investment industry. And uh, it's really hit a fever pitch with this latest bill. And up until this point, it was um, a little bit more you know, behind the scenes and just a fad. But um, it certainly caught a lot of people's attention. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's a measure that some fund managers use to evaluate whether a company like Amazon was running their company in a way to support the environment and other social issues. And you know, the idea is to get companies to act responsibly by using these measures to screen investments based on these corporate policies. So ESG, you hear that a lot, environmental, social, and governance. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, I mean, it's it has certainly caught on um, here in the last few years. I mean, you know, global ESG fund assets reached about $2.5 trillion at the end of 2022, up from um, about $2.25 trillion at the end of the third quarter, according to Morningstar. Um, so, you know, nearly a 12% jump, you know, almost double the growth of the broad fund market in general. Um, so clearly this trend is gaining some momentum. You know, one obvious question, though, is how have these investments actually performed? And unfortunately, there's some studies out there recently that, that show that it's not that well, unfortunately. So um, to begin with, though, you know, ESG funds in a recent study performed poorly, um, you know, compared to other investments. In 2021, the Journal of Finance uh, issued a paper. Uh, University of Chicago researchers analyzed Morningstar sustainability ratings of more than 20,000 mutual funds representing over $8 trillion of, of investor savings. And although the highest fund rating in terms of sustainability certainly attracted more capital than the lowest rated funds, none of the high sustainability funds outperformed any of the, the lowest rated funds is basically what, they're, what they found. Yeah, and those results might be expected. And, and it's possible that investors would be happy to sacrifice you know, financial returns if there was better ESG performance. Uh, unfortunately, ESG funds don't seem to deliver better ESG performance either. Um, researchers at Columbia University and the London School of Economics compared the ESG record of U.S. companies in 147 ESG fund portfolios um, and that of the U.S. companies in 2,428 non-ESG portfolios. And they found that the companies in the ESG portfolios had worse compliance records for both labor and environmental rules. Uh, they also found that companies added to ESG portfolios um, did not subsequently improve compliance with labor or environmental regulation. So, you know, that's that's one researcher's take on it. There may be, you know, other studies out there, but they just sure. didn't find a difference in the, the ESG performance um, associated with it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, according to this article, it wasn't an isolated finding either. Um, a recent uh, European Corporate Governments Institute paper compared ESG scores of companies invested in by 684 U.S. institutional investors that had signed the, the United Nations Principles of Responsible Investing uh, <clears throat> statement and 66,481 institutional investors that did not sign it um, from 2013 to 2017 and they didn't detect any improvement in ESG scores of the companies held by the ones that did sign it um, compared to the, mm -hmm. the ones that didn't sign it. So, 
you know, I mean, furthermore, financial returns were lower and the risk was higher for the ones that did sign it is what they found in, in that study. Um, so, you know, why are ESG funds doing so poorly? Um, you know, part of the explanation may simply be that, you know, an express focus on ESG is is redundant. Um, you know, in competitor labor, competitive labor markets and in product markets, corporate managers trying to maximize long-term shareholder value um, should, of their own accord, you know, pay attention to employees and, and customers and community and environmental interests, right? Um, on that basis, setting ESG targets may actually just kind of distort that decision-making and kind of, hmm. you know, uh, distract their efforts to do that. Um, you know, there's also some evidence that companies you know, that are publicly embracing the, the ESG kind of as a cover for poor business practices or poor business performance. A recent paper by um, the University of Northern Iowa um, and the University of South Carolina reported that when managers underperform the earnings expectations um, set by the analyst following their company, um, they often publicly talked more about their focus on ESG um, but when they exceeded earnings expectations, um, they, they made few, if any, public statements about ESG. So it was kind of a cover for poor performance. You know, hence, sustainability fund managers who direct their investments to companies uh, that are publicly embracing ESG principles may be over-investing over in financially underperforming companies is kind of what the point is here. So... Hmm. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, it's a little obvious that underperformance would be a result over time of applying ESG criteria to your investment selection because it's simply contrary to the academic way of achieving higher returns. I mean, if our goal is higher returns, as is the case for most of us, you know, then research shows that if you tilt your portfolio toward dimensions of higher return, like small and value and profitability, then, then you get higher returns. But when you screen companies for those characteristics, you quickly narrow that investment field to a relatively small pool of companies each month. So if you also apply these ESG criteria to that screen, then you really, you really narrow it down to a minuscule number of companies, which might represent a very small segment of the overall market. Um, you know, and there are only so many factors you can apply well when you're selecting investments, including ESG, into that you know, mix quickly muddies the water. So in short, when you take your eye off the ball of returns, you quickly degrade performance. I mean, it's just kind of common sense. Yeah, and so despite the poor performance, um, if you still want to apply this ESG to your investment selection process, Another issue in the industry is there's not an agreed-upon standard. I mean, ESG scores are provided by a, a myriad of uh, rating agencies, um, which are third-party companies that specialize in, in the ESG scoring. And in the U.S., there are currently over 140 firms that provide ESG scores, uh, each with a different approach and a different rating system. And some of the prominent ESG score providers include Bloomberg and Dow Jones, uh, MSCI, uh, Thomas Reuters, S&P, Fitch, Moody's. I mean, there's a lot of well-known names there. And they're each using their own proprietary formula to determine their score based on their own values and goals. And uh, since the formula is secret, it's rightly questioned whether these companies tilt their scores based on the amount of business 
the individual companies pay for their services. So there's just not a consistent uh, rating system. And, you know, it's uh, these businesses have ESG scores and um, they're all they're a- apples and oranges. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of different systems out there. So even if we could agree <laughs> on one standard, clearly, I mean, that standard wouldn't perfectly reflect your values or, or ours. Um, you know, when it comes to environmental and social issues, I mean, you're trying to nail down something that's as diverse as picking your favorite color or the food that you eat. Um, you know, of course, I mean, we can all agree on the basic goal that we, you know, that no company should be dumping toxic waste, you know, into the environment. Um, and, you know, that's why we have thousands of laws that govern that. But to try and measure how far companies go beyond the law is very subjective. Um, in fact, I mean, if we base our investments on a score, you'll obviously be tilting your portfolio away from um, things like manufacturing, you know, if you pick the highest ESG scoring companies. I mean, think about it. There are entire industries like energy, manufacturing, transportation that are simply going to be hard-pressed to score well on environmental scores compared to to industries like retail sales or entertainment. Yeah, it's also helpful to recognize that avoiding investing in a company's stock um, doesn't really punish the underlying company to any meaningful degree. I mean, because company stocks, they're traded on the secondary market, meaning that you're not buying the stock from the company uh, who initially issued the stock. Instead, you're simply buying it from someone else in the open market. So avoiding owning a stock does nothing to punish the company because you're already it's already been issued. Um, they've already reaped the benefits from that capital uh, long, long ago. So you're merely making, making yourself, you know, hit that goal of owning ESG by not owning their stock, but it really does nothing to punish the profitability or their earnings um, today. Yeah, that's right. So if you feel strongly about a value or an issue and you want to support companies that further your cause or punish the ones that oppose your values, you know, how can you best do that? if owning or avoiding their stock is not really one of those ways to do that. Um, And the answer simply comes down to directing your spending toward those companies that you like and avoiding the ones you oppose. I mean, because if you love the values of, say, Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby, then, yeah, go buy their sandwiches or shop their store. You know, but if you oppose oil companies and petroleum products that are creating greenhouse gases, then drive an electric car, et cetera. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things you can do with the way you direct your habits and your spending, um, and that's going to have a much more dramatic impact and direct impact on companies' underlying profits and their success than whether or not you invest in their stock. Um, you know, and in any course, any giving, of course, giving to charitable organizations that support your cause will have an even more direct sure. impact, right? Because you're giving money directly to an organization that's focused on that cause. Um, but mixing those issues and those values with your investment process is ultimately hurts your performance and likely will do nothing to impact those issues. So that's kind of the bottom line on ESG. Um, yeah, yeah. Good, good topic. We've had a lot of questions on it. We certainly have. <clears throat> so I think it's an important topic. And But anyway, let us know if you have questions about that. Um, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, we just talked about the average age being 64 for retirement in the U.S., but you know, we do have folks that um, uh, want to retire earlier. And uh, so the question is, is I want to retire at 55. 
Um, but you know, you can't access IRA money until 59 and a half without the penalty. So the question is, is how can I retire at 55 and not have that penalty? And there, mm. there are a number of solutions. I'll cover a couple and then I'll let you jump in. Um, okay. first of all, you can, you can take money out of a 401k, um, if you retire at 55 and not pay the penalty. So that's, right. that's one, one option we see people do sometimes. Um, another one is to, there's a really technical, uh, IRS code is called the 72T that you can uh, take money out of an IRA and you can stream the payments consistently over five years. And it's pretty regulated. You've got to really follow that process, but you can get money out of an IRA. Um, yeah, that's right. And it's a limited amount, you know, if you yeah. do that, it's based on interest rates. But yeah, the 72T is an option as well, like you said. But, you know, just planning is is really the best way to do it. Um in my opinion, and that is, you know, to accumulate some after-tax money um, that you build up that'll bridge that gap between 55 and 59 and a half. Um, and so you can do that over the years, you know, just direct some money to outside investments, the outside of your retirement plan that's accessible at any age. And then also, um, you know, Roth IRAs is a great way to do it. If you fully fund a Roth IRA, then that Roth IRA will... Um, those contributions are available um, for withdrawal anytime. So that can bridge the gap between 55 and 60. So lots of ways to do that. It just takes some planning. That's it does. the key. Yeah. And plan, plan, plan. There you go. All right. And that leads us up here to our next topic, and that is uh, the yawn, uh, <laughs> pipe yeah. dreams. We're talking about the currency, the China's yawn. Right. Yeah. So this is uh, written by Milton uh, Ezrata. He's a senior contributor at uh, at Barron's. And talk has reemerged that China's yuan will soon uh, challenge the, the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And um, you know, this question, this uh, or the spark for such a talk came recently from a visit by Chinese uh, President uh, Xi um, Jinping to the Middle East. And he emphasized the reach of China's trade and also made clear his d- desire for oil contracts to settle in the, in the yuan and not, in, uh, as usual, in dollars. And so the Saudis seem to have no objection. Uh, such actions, though, um, command notice and none- nonetheless fall far short of chi- achieving uh, Beijing's longstanding ambition for their currency to serve as the premier global reserve. And to accomplish this, China will have to jump many more hurdles. Um, the, the yawn today falls woefully short on every major attri- attribute of a global reserve and still more vexing for Beijing. Success on the yawn will uh, require in ways, uh, require change in many ways that the governing communist party may find impossible. Um, so again, this has been out there now for, it's been out there, like you said, for a very long time. It's kind of raised its its head up um, in addition again. to mm-hmm. them talking to the Middle East. They've been talking to Russia about it as well. Yeah, that's right. This isn't really a new issue, but um, but it is talked about from time to time. And and I've heard some talks on this as well um, from people that really focus on this. And, you know, what I've heard, John, is that it, it is there is a huge gap between, you know, where the U.S. dollar is and where the China's currency is in terms of being able to be used as a widely accepted as a reserve currency. And um, and we're going to point some of those things out right here um but for one to replace the dollar as a reserve currency it has to gain much wider acceptance than it presently has as a basis of trade and import and export contracting um according to the figures from the first half of last year only about two percent of global import export contracts were denominated in yuan 
or settling on. Um, and, you know, that's well up for, you know, five or 10 years from five or 10 years ago, but it's still well short of where the dollar was. The dollar accounts for 75, some 75% of the world trade contracts that are settled in dollars, um, much of it without even American party involved. So big difference there. Yeah, it also doesn't, the yuan doesn't have uh, anything near the necessary presence in currency trading According to the Bank of um, for International Settlements, the yuan did uh, gain considerable ground this past year uh, as a proportion of the global tra- uh, currency trading. It received an extra uh, bump because of Western sanctions against uh, Russia made Chinese links valuable to anyone who wanted to buy or sell in Russia, so it got a boost there. Uh, largely because of that lift, the yuan passed the proportions of trading done in either the Canadian or the Australian dollar. Uh, or even the Swiss franc. But even with this, you know, this year's special jump, the yuan still commands only 7% of the global currency trading. It still falls far, far short of the amount of currency trading in euros, uh, yen, the Japanese yen, or the pound sterling. And it uh, remains well behind the dollar, which dominates some 90% of all global currency trading. Yeah, and preferences by central banks to hold each currency in reserve Um you know, gets the, the yawn, it shows the yawn's inadequacies from, you know, a different perspective. I mean, some 70 central banks do hold yawn in reserve, but, you know, a much greater number than a few years ago. But according to the International Monetary Fund, IMF, um, those holdings only amount to about 2.5% of the global trade. And that figure falls far short of the euro, for instance, which amounts to about 20.6% of the reserves are even, um, you know, the yen, which amounts the to yen. the yen, sorry, the Japanese yen, which amounts to 5.8%. Yeah, I mean, the yen's role, I mean, certainly falls far short of the dollar. It accounts for, the dollar accounts for about 59% of global reserves. So as it should be apparent from the trading proportions mentioned, you know, here, I mean, the dollar on a strictly practical ground should have a a, a lot higher proportion of central bank reserves than it does. I mean, the the influence of diplomacy and politics in this realm, you know, kind of explains the difference, but it's it's apparently very political. Yeah, and perhaps the greatest of the Jan's failings uh, concerns a third and crucial attribute needed by the reserve currency, and that's support from the financial markets. You know, reserve currency not only needs to be widely used and traded, but because importers, exporters, and those who support them financially must hold assets in the reserve, the markets denominated in it must offer a a wide range of investment options, short-term deposits, for instance, longer-term bonds, stocks, options, futures, forward contracts, and the like. And so acceptable financial markets must also offer people the ability to trade in and out of such investments quickly and easily with the greatest flexibility and the the least cost. And so dollar-based markets in the United States and elsewhere offer an abundance of such support. So yuan-based markets, by contrast, are much thinner, much more tightly controlled by the authorities in Beijing. And so, you know, this this is, um, you know, this is one specific example. We get these questions all the time, and there's always something different. Right. Every day there's a headline that is scary out there, from war to currency to economy, you name it, politicians, whatever. You just can't make decisions based on these headlines. And you know, if if I'm sure there would be, if the dollar was not the world currency, there would be a, a an adjustment period, and it would probably be painful in some cases. 
but markets would adjust and companies would adjust and you know it's just not something that you can predict and certainly don't sit there and worry about it cuz no one knows if it's going to happen and when it's going to happen you know i don't personally don't think this is going to happen in our lifetime but um you know it's just a headline right. that scares people so yeah that's exactly <clears throat> right and it's not even a, a, a something i think that would directly and dramatically impact the returns in the stock market yeah. per se. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it is an item, and it, it's something that you know people tend to worry about. We get a lot of questions about that. But um, you know, along with a lot of things, it's it's overhyped. It's nowhere mm-hmm. close to becoming a reality. So anyway, good topic, and that leads us up here to our prescription of the week. Yeah, this prescription is uh, has to do with retirement planning. We're talking about that a, a lot today in some of the, the questions and the financial fact. But, um, d- you know, do a retirement plan. Make sure you know how much money you can get from your investments. We've we've had two cases over the last month where we've had folks come in and they're working part-time jobs and they're not taking any money from their, their portfolios um, as they joined us. And so we basically did a retirement plan and said, you know, you can take $1,500 a month for the rest of your life. And they're like, well, I don't have to work. And we're like, correct. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so they can, you can make decisions because um, they would rather have the time. Uh, they need the money, but they have a, an opportunity with what they've saved to get that monthly income. So that's really the power of the plan. It gives you some flexibility in your own life that you don't have to work. You don't have to have part-time jobs unless you want to do that. So it was really cool, those two experiences um, with folks just kind of freeing them up, not having to work and then turning on an income stream from, from their investments. Um, it was just a neat neat opportunity for them, and it's kind of fun doing the planning piece of it because it, it kind of highlights those opportunities. Yeah, you can really see the anxiety level drop, you know, when yeah. somebody has a plan and they, they realize they're going to be okay, you know, and they have enough and they can draw some income out of their uh, their investments. So the, the plan is the key for that. So you really got to have a plan if you don't have one in place so you can see where you're headed and, you know, you know, no, you're in between the lines, right, on your road to retirement. So good good uh, prescription there. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Do tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Send us your questions, link to us there, or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Have a good one. Program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. About a